So, hey, I'm Jack, and um, Bethany Northeast lead pastor. Great to meet some new people here today. A lot of new faces. So, welcome. I assume that means you're either visiting today or you're kind of, you've discovered Bethany Northeast and you're kind of checking it out. So, I think our hope is, uh, on behalf of our whole staff, is that, not, that you're not only connecting into community, but that you're actually experiencing the Lord here and, and going deeper in your faith. So, whether that's through a conversation or through this time of worship or whatever it might be, a glimpse of some sort of hope, we want that for you. So that's our prayer this morning. We're finishing up, as Jenny said, Philippians, and that we'll begin um, then Psalm 23 next Sunday. So invite you back for that. But let me take a moment to just uh, pause and pray as we enter into this last half of, actually, it's not even the whole half because we're just going to look at these four verses, these last really kind of big four verses in Philippians chapter 4. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity we have to um, not only come into uh, this gathering and worship with uh, friends and brothers and sisters um, to understand what it means to follow you in community, but also to open your word together as well. This is unusual for most of us, God, to kind of do a large group Bible study like this, but we do invite your spirit now to, to be our teacher. So we open it. Uh, we open your word. It's your word, God, you've written it to our hearts. Open our hearts to receive what you have for each of us, as well as our community collectively, God. Shape us to be your people as we, as we gather here and then scatter later this hour. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, hey, I often get asked uh, by friends here, friends, many friends outside the church, as a pastor, which day of the week I take off, because <clears throat> I don't have Sunday typically. Um, and so that's Friday, just so you know. Uh, and this is how Fridays typically work. This is probably an overshare, but there you go. I, I help Elizabeth get the kids ready and off to school. We have two kids, and they're headed off to school. Elizabeth heads off to work. She's a school teacher. And then uh, I usually head out for a couple-hour bike ride on Fridays. This is kind of one of my days just to get out by myself and clear some headspace. And then I'll come home. This is a way, way overshare. You're like, you don't care. Come home, two slices of bacon, two eggs. <laughs> And coffee, like usually it's like my third cup. And then um, while I'm eating, I typically sit down and, uh, you know, I've finished my sermon, so I'm either listening to some music, like usually some worship music, or uh, I'll be listening to an audio book. I'm intentionally trying not to, like, read. Um, or lately it's been podcasts, and so a variety of different podcasts that people tell me about. And there's this one podcast that I've been listening to from NPR. I heard it on NPR one day. And then started to listen to the podcast. It's called Science Friday. It happens to come out on Friday. Anybody else listen to Science Friday? Really fascinating podcast. It's kind of this technology and science podcast. Covers a wide range of topics, astronomy, psychology, really cool stuff. Here's a few samples of some recent shows for those that don't know the show. Here's a, these are just the titles of the show. On the 200-year anniversary of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, we look at some possible modern-day monsters in the tech world. So that's for those that would be interested in... I don't know, monsters. Uh, here's another one I found. A ball of mouse skin could lead to new insights into human skin generation. So there you go. There's a use for mice. And then this one from a couple years ago that really caught my attention. A new study finds that people are terrible at sitting alone with their thoughts. How about you? And so that episode was back in 2014, and it uh, looked into this study that was done by a group of researchers at psychologists at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. They brought people into their lab, into this room, and they're going to have them just sit in this room alone 
for about 10 to 20 minutes, totally alone. And so before they do that, you know, they sit them down, take all their personal possessions away, their iPhone, their keys, anything they could fidget with, um, and then show them, like in every good psychology experience uh, or experiment, a variety of pictures, <laughs> like sad pictures, happy pictures, neutral pictures, sorry, Thane, uh, and, and then ask them, like, how do those pictures make you feel, you know? And then, interestingly, they showed them this button, <clears throat> like a, you can imagine like a clicker button. And they said this button is going to, it would shock them if they pressed it. And then they had them press it just to feel the shock. It's like press the button, shock. And then they asked them about their experience with the shock. Was it pleasant, unpleasant? Would they pay to not be shocked? And here's the interesting thing. All the subjects in this study told their res- the researchers of this study that the shock was unpleasant. We kind of figure that much. No, most of us don't like being shocked. And that they'd pay to not be shocked again. They'd literally, if they had their wallets, still they would take, they'd pay money to not be shocked. So the researchers said, great. And then, and then they left their research subjects in the room alone, 10 to 20 minutes. I told them there's only two rules. You can't get out of your chair. You have to sit. And you can't fall asleep. Okay, we're going to be watching. Okay, I'm on you. Can't fall asleep. And so then they said, hey, your goal is to have a good time. Try and have pleasant thoughts. And if you want, go ahead and press the button. <laughs> you see where this is going. Fascinating study. Even though 100% of the subjects said they didn't like the shock, would pay to not be shocked, 70% of the men, sorry guys, 25% of the women, we are not the sharpest tools in the shed, shocked themselves during the 10 to 20 minutes. In fact, there was this one guy, guy, not in the neutral sense, like a man, one man, who pressed this button 190 times <laughs> in the 12 minutes. See, that's 10 times per minute. Just like... Uh, it reminded me of this famous quote by the 17th century scientist and philosopher Blaise Pascal. Maybe you've heard this. All of humanity's problems stem from man's, not just men, but man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. All of them. 300 years on, it's still true. We struggle at just sitting in silence with nothing but our own thoughts. Like, why is that? Why is it so hard for us? And the research is literally still out. Uh, at the time of this study, these researchers still had some work to do to figure out what's going on, whether it was our culture's power over us. And so, like, we've, we're so fidgety. We have to have something in our hands, a device. We have to have something to keep our attention that we, we can't sit alone. Or whether it's just something in our DNA or whether it's we just like to push buttons. Nobody knows. But the Bible offers a really critical insight on this problem. And that's this. We lack contentment. We just lack contentment. We live in a world that breeds discontent. Here's how this goes. We're bombarded with the message that to be happy, we need more things, less wrinkles, wrinkle-free clothing, better vacations, fewer troubles. We're told to get up, climb the stairs, you know, don't take the escalator, stretch every 10 minutes, better yet, stand all day, stand all day, better for you, which have become metaphors for our inability to sit still. It's like the symptomatic of something deeper going on within us. You see, ultimately the problem with our inability to sit still with our thoughts, is our heart. Uh, We're discontent with our jobs, our marriages, the church, (laughs) our homes, in most areas of our lives. We're just discontent, and we're churning, we're churning, and thus we're living a life of discouragement, deep discouragement, but low-grade despair. Like, we're just, we're we're sure. We're never going to be happy. We're never going to find true meaning. We're endlessly striving and seeking on the go and grasping to achieve that thing that's just, just out of our grasp. If we could only get that, just one more email, I'll get there. You know, just one more hour at work, I'll get there, you know. And, and so, by the way, this isn't just our issue. 
This was the issue in Paul's day. This was a big issue in the church in Philippi. That's why he finishes the letter here this way. It's like his little P.S. You know, he's loaded this letter with so much good stuff. And then he says, P.S. Are you discontent? Are you churning? Are you just a mess? I have a secret. I want to tell you before I finish this, before I sign off, I have a secret. Do you want to hear the secret? And uh, that's the secret of contentment. So we're going to look at the secret of contentment this morning. It's really simple. We're going to look at what it is, how it's revealed, and then sort of tipping my hand to the slide that I'm going to show you, by whom it's supplied. But don't show the slide, Jerry. Okay. <clears throat> All right, so what it is, and you can have your Bible open on your phone if you want, even though I just kind of threw you under the bus for not being able to sit alone in silence without your phone, but it's okay. I, I know most of us have our Bibles on our phones now. So Philippians 4, verses 11 and 12, this is where Paul says, I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance, okay? And so the question on the table is, um, what is contentment? What does that word mean? And if you just pull that word apart in Greek, it's this Greek word, out archeo. Okay, which is really important because the word archaeo in Greek means to be satiated or satisfied. Okay, it's a word from kind of the foodie world. Like it, when you've gone to Ethan Stoll, for example, if anybody's gone to one of the Ethan Stoll restaurants, and like you're just, you know, Elizabeth and I went to one, Tavolata, I think, and we had like these, uh, she wasn't really into mussels at the time, but because, you know, you, you taste the salt water, you taste the grit, you're like, ooh. And we had these mussels, and it was like, wow. You know, it was like a trip to the beach or something. It was just amazing, you know? And then this uh, pasta was handmade and just everything about it. I still remember that, that date. And it's like one of those meals. Not too much, so you're uncomfortable, you know, like on Thanksgiving. But also, every last bite was amazing. Great food. Have you ever, I mean, have you ever had a meal like that? Whether you made it yourself, went out to dinner for it. Um, that's what Paul's talking about. That's what contentment, archaeo, is. It's about... Uh, satiation, but not physical satiation. He's saying this is about soul satiation, soul satisfaction. That's what archaeo means. But notice he didn't say just archaeo. He says out archaeo. Now the word out, ought, is a prefix. We get auto from it. It means self. So self-satiated, self-satisfied. It, and it doesn't mean to be satisfied with yourself. Like that's smugness. That leads to complacency. I'd say complacency is the opposite of contentment, Okay. Paul's not complacent. He's very driven. Contentment is being satisfied by yourself. Um, and the by doesn't mean like from. I'm like, yo, I'm content. <laughs> it's like uh, all by yourself, not needing. Listen to his language. Not needing plenty. Not needing want. Paul's not in need. He, it means he's sufficient in and of himself, strong enough to... He possesses n- no need for support. He's independent of all the external circumstances around him. It, so it's soul satisfaction. It's, it's like him saying, God, you're enough. I love you enough. I'm loved by you enough. I don't need the approval of others. It's your approval. It's your love. It's not the love of others. It's not what others have, will do for me. It's what you've promised to do for me, what you do for me. Not the influences and the actions of others on my life, but what, how you're influencing my life. That's what contentment is, okay? Really, um, best illustration I could think of as I studied this idea throughout the week was a, a time I, in Kenya I often share stories from Kenya when, I'm, when I was living there. I um, was just sharing with somebody this morning about my time there. And so I lived, I started my time living in Kenya. I was in my mid-20s, um, single, just trying to go out and see the world, and uh, lived in this slum in Nairobi called Mathari Valley. It's one of the most densely 
populated slums in East Africa. Um, very culturally diverse. Lots of refugees from all over Africa, Middle East. Also lots of religions represented. Uh, Buddhists, Muslims, Christians, animists, all kinds of people. And then abject poverty. Like you can't even imagine how poor this community was. So culture shock doesn't even begin to describe my experience there. Like I was half, you know, I was a fish out of water. Like I'm this 25-year-old Caucasian-American from Spokane with an undergraduate degree in comparative sociology from the University of Puget Sound. Like I don't belong in this situation alone. And it wasn't working. And so I ended up being given the opportunity a, a, a few months into this because it's just not working. I'm way over my, ski, uh, I'm way over my head to move into this home with this Kenyan pastor and his wife. They heard my story. <clears throat> they feel sorry for me, I think. Um, and, you know, I was, is that or go home? You know, because it was just not working. It was really hard. And so they lived about 100 miles north of Nairobi in this little town called Chuka, in this very rural area, kind of the coffee region, tea region. And uh, they invited me to come live with them. And then they have this, they have this their church had this um, kind of group home for boys who were coming off the street, many from Nairobi where I was working, boys 18, 18, 8 to 18 who had been orphaned um, and then were receiving care and support from their church. So they offered me a room in their home with one, one uh, kind of contingency that I had a job. My job was to basically help these boys. through. They had lost their house parent. And so they're like, you know, hey, come do this. So help them with homework, just live, be in their lives for like the next 10 to 12 months and just grow in the process. And, you know, it sounded like young life. I'd done young life. I'm like, I can do that, you know. So I did that. And it wasn't lavish. It wasn't lavish living at all. Um, we had no electricity, no running water, you know, nothing like that. But it was nothing short of heaven. Like it was, there was throughout this time, this pastor, Moses and his wife, just extended generosity upon generosity. I'd run out of propane. They'd fill my propane tank. You know, I'd, I had nothing. They would give me rides places. It was amazing. And it was just like grace upon grace upon grace right up until this last day when I was there when uh, he and his family and the group of boys who I was working with and living with threw me this sending party. They threw me a party to send me off back to Seattle, kind of a a big Kenyan-style church potluck. And they invited the entire community. There was hundreds of people that came out that I'd never met, none of them. And they didn't know me. They saw me, but they didn't know me. And they prepared this lavish feast that took days and days and days to prepare. Big, huge deal. And I happened to wander in during that week of preparation into our little barn because we do work still and we had animals, we had goats and we had chickens and pigs and the feed was in this little barn. So I go into this barn and I had this really wild moment. Uh, um, what's that show with the, the dead, pe- dead people, the zombies? Walking Dead moment. Like I've never seen the show, but I had this Walking Dead moment. When I walk in, there's this goat, dead goat hanging upside down in the barn and its eyes are like... And I'm like, ah! You know, and like, really creepy moment. I screamed, I ran out, and I, I, uh, and I asked Moses, like, what, what's the deal with the goat? Is that our goat? And I think they named it Jack. So I was like, <laughs> and it was. They killed the goat for me. They, and the boys had all agreed to do this. This was a vital source of income for them. You know, all the animals were a big part of their, it was an asset. Just, it wasn't just another animal running around the yard. And they were getting ready to roast it for me. They were going to roast this goat for me, and the, the entire community was going to come out in my honor. My honor. <laughs> and by the way, incredible gesture. It's like, it'd be like one of us kind of emptying out our savings account, like, and then inviting, like, 
your entire neighborhood to a party for a na- just to throw a birthday party for a neighbor that you barely knew. Like, think of doing that. And that's what they did. I was just stunned. And so I asked Moses, I said, why did you do that? Like, I could have paid for that. I could have even called my parents. They could have paid for that. Like, why did you do this? The goat's dead. Like, you can't bring the goat back from the dead. That's walking dead, right? So, and he said, you know what he said? This has stuck with me ever since. He said, Jack, everything we have is a gift. Everything we have is a gift. And that just stunned me, like changed my life. Everything we have is a gift. Do you believe that about your, your life? Not just your physical things, but everything you have. Is everything you have a gift? Everything. The relationships you're in, the community you live in, the job you have, the car you drive, the house you live in, your marriage, your children, are they gifts? That it's not, they're not just enough, but they're, they're more than you actually deserve. That, that they were given to you at the hand of another, that no matter how life goes, you're able to say, thank you, Lord. I, I don't deserve this. It's, it's, it's more, than I, more than I actually need. It, it's a gift. This life you've given me, it's just an amazing provision of your grace. Thank you. I'm content. That's contentment. Everything I have is a gift. Do you, do you have a life of absolute contentment? Or do you find yourself always kind of chafing and a little grumpy, like I sometimes am, even though I had that experience? Because you never feel like you have quite enough. You know, it's tax season. Haven't paid off last year's tax bill yet. Uh, you know, man, our marriage just can't quite get it right. We're always struggling with our calendar, our kids. Ugh. Always longing for more. Never quite where I want to be in my job. Whatever it might be. A sort of feeling that life has never really treated you fair. That life's never been fair to you. You feel like you deserve more than you have because you've worked so hard to get where you are, and yet it's not quite enough, you know? Earl Palmer, who is a former pastor at University Press, once said this in a sermon. He said, most people who are confused and harmed by abundance and loss are the ones who confer permanence on either of those. They don't see life as a gift. And so contentment begins with being able to say, everything I have is a gift, none of it's insignificant, so I can say thank you, and yet none of it's permanent. And so I can say, thank you. It's okay. It's it's not the cake. It's just the icing. <laughs> I'm soul satisfied. I'm content. That's contentment, okay? That's what it means to understand commitment. So let's look at how it's revealed because that's kind of the base of what it is, but it's important to know how it's revealed to us. And Paul says it's a learned secret, okay? It's a learned secret. So I want to break that down. Those are two very important ideas, a learned secret, okay? So first, the secret. In the Greek text again, Paul reaches outside the, the realm of biblical literature, and borrows a word that shows up only one other place in one of his other letters in 1 Timothy. And he, but he grabs from the culture. It's nowhere else in the New Testament or Greek literature, in, in New Testament Greek literature. And thus he introduces a new idea to Christianity. Secret, a, a learned secret. Uh, the secret of contentment. Now what's important to know is this word was only used in cultic mysticism. Emphasis on cultic. <laughs> like he's talking about being initiated into something something very secretive, the mysteries of faith. Kind of like if you were ever in a sorority or fraternity. I was in a fraternity. remember going through Rush and learning all the secret songs and secret rituals and the secret handshake. I was like, I thought I was joining a fraternity, (laughs) not a gang, like this is weird. And uh, anyway, Paul grabs this word and he places in this context and he says, I've been initiated into this fraternity of contentment, this sorority of soul satisfaction, this mystery cult. 
of satiation. It's kind of bizarre. And not a lot of people know about it, friends. And uh, let me tell you about it because it, it's changed my life. I've been initiated into this mystery of life with its ups and its downs, and I'm able to live with resilience of being with and without, whereas the old King James puts it abounding in a basement. And here's the important thing. We don't have to join a cult <laughs> to understand the secret. This is, not, this is not a cult, just so you know, in case you're visiting today. <laughs> you don't have to join it. It's not a fraternity or sorority thing, okay? Uh, it's a learned secret. This is so important, okay? Uh, to be a disciple, do you know what the word disciple means? It's a learner, a lifelong learner. That's all a disciple. When Jesus talks about calling people as disciples, he's saying, I'm calling learners. That's all it is. Lifelong learner. That's all it means, to learn from Jesus. But not to know about Jesus in an abstract, like, bookish way, like reading about Jesus in your Bible. That's good, but not what it means to be a disciple. Not just listening about Jesus on Sunday in a sermon. Good, but not what it means to be a disciple. But to, to know Jesus by being with Jesus following and listening to Jesus like Jesus says in Matthew 11, uh, that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And that's what it means today. So Paul was a disciple of Jesus too. And so he understood that. And he says, I've, I've learned this secret. He says, hey guys, I didn't just stumble upon it. Like it's an Easter egg hidden in the grass. Love the Easter egg hunt will do. Contentment's not an Easter egg. I didn't discover it hidden in the couch cushions as I was binge watching something on Netflix. It's not a secret like that. It wasn't an aha moment on a Sunday. Uh, I learned it, which means I submitted myself to Jesus by walking with him daily, not just Sunday morning, watching him and learning from him while I followed him in my calling to which he's called me, my work, my vocation as a parent, whatever it might be, and then taking these, these steps of faith, some of them radical, some of them simple, into uncertain territory in my life where I don't know what the outcome's going to be. That's what it means to be a disciple, to learn from Jesus, to trust him in the day-to-day, and so the key is that Paul didn't learn this by reading in a book or listening to a podcast or a sermon. He learned it by choosing to live it. He lived it, first and foremost. So to that end, just getting really practical here because that's a little bit up in the clouds. What would it look like for you, for any of us right here in this room, for those willing to learn? Are you, are you willing to learn a little bit still, even though you're 40 or whatever? How old are you? <laughs> I'm not going to ask. Not, not a good question. I'm almost 45, guys. Am I willing to keep learning? Okay? I know some of you are like, what? <laughs> Can I check your driver's license? Yeah, I'll show you later. So he offers, in, in Philippians 4, there's lots of ways you can learn from Jesus, but Philippians 4, just staying here, three real quick ways that he, you can learn contentment. Okay, I'm going to go through these really fast before coming to that secret slide, okay? So you can learn through embracing trials. So in verse, verse 13, all the pronouns are so key in this passage. Verse 13, he says, through all this, and then back up to verse 12, whether in plenty or want, and then back up to verse 11, he says, whatever the circumstance, you see those pronouns, through, whether, whatever, I'm learning, okay? That's really important. It's just another way for Paul to say, you'll learn contentment in as much as you live and learn to embrace your trials. So the takeaway, it means, it means this, to be a disciple means don't make the avoidance of suffering your life goal. Don't, if you want to set yourself apart from the rest of the, the world as a disciple of Jesus, don't make the avoidance of suffering your life's goal. To the contrary, look at Jesus. He says, I know pain. I, he experienced physical pain. He experienced poverty and rejection. He knew doubt and despair. Isaiah says he was well acquainted with grief. He knew grief. And even so, he lived in a way 
in which he embraced them all. He had this wide embrace of that type of life, those experiences that shaped his outlook on life, shaped his ability to, to endure the cross. In fact, I think it's because of that that he was able to face the cross. I mean, what a shameful thing to be executed as a criminal when you're innocent, naked in front of the community. And he endured that. He learned, and why? He first learned contentment. He learned that he can embrace that type of, those things as, as the Lord allowed them. He learned that his life was a pure gift from the hand of a loving God. Take my life. God loves me still. It doesn't matter. See, insulated living is not the pathway of discipleship, and at least not those that are learning to follow Jesus, okay? And thus says Paul, that will learn contentment by embracing suffering, by seeing in the midst of our own suffering, I've learned it took a while. It's going to take a while. But it was very hard, but I'm learning. Um, I've learned. It's been a really difficult process, but I'm continuing to learn. I've learned it didn't come intuitively. It's not like a Mac. It's not intuitive. It's like more like a PC. Very frustrating. <laughs> but I've learned, and I'm continuing to learn, you know? And I'm able to learn what it means to be defined by, rooted in, grounded in the extravagant love of Jesus. That's it. That's contentment, okay? So learn by embracing your sufferings. Here's the second one. Learn through the expression of gratitude. So in verse 14, Paul thanks the Philippians for their gift. It's good for you to share my troubles. They've given him some money. And in doing so, he's kind of getting to the occasion for his letter. He wrote this letter to the church in Philippi because he was in prison. And prisoners in the ancient Near East, where it was different than our prisons, is there was no food court. There was no laundry there was no uh, provision of anything. So you would literally, if you didn't have an outside source of income, a community to support you, you would starve to death in jail. And that was the goal, really. And so Paul had these churches he planted. He wrote to them, asked for support. He says, I'm going to die. I'm afraid I'm going to die here. And they all, send, they all send money, especially the Philippians. And he, so he thanks, he thanks them. He's grateful for their generosity. He's able to receive it. And it sounds a little arrogant if you read this paragraph we didn't read. Like he's saying, I didn't really need your gift, but thank you anyway. You know, like I could have gotten by without you. It sounds like that. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, as Paul, he does so often, is he's, he's learned and continues to learn contentment by way of expressing gratitude. He's always saying thank you to those churches he planted. And not just in the abstract sense, but in this really particular and ordinary way. He says, thank you for the gift. And here's what this means. I grabbed this because I remember reading this when I was just out of college. Uh, you guys know this book by Richard Foster on prayer. Some of you guys have read this. It's a classic. I remembered him re writing about gratitude, so I thumbed through and found it. And he says this. I, th I thought this was really amazing at the time. I think it applies. He says, Thanksgiving, praise, adoration, these are seldom the first words on our lips. He goes, he's talking about how the kids don't say thank you. They say please or they complain most naturally. So those are seldom the first words on our, our lips or our minds as adults. And so we need all the help we can get in order to move deeper and fuller into adoring or, or gratituding. <laughs> and so we offer some stepping stones, and here's one of them. <clears throat> we begin right in the nooks and the crannies and the frustrations and the fears of ordinary life. So we're filled with sadness. It seldom helps to count on our many blessings, you know, like you're being, count your many blessings. Rehearse the attributes of God. We learn adoration on the ground. <laughs> uh, you know, when we start in the, the clouds, it wears us down. We start on the ground. We learn to we learn the goodness of God, not by contemplating the goodness of God, but by watching a butterfly. I thought that was really interesting. 
So here's his counsel. He says, begin by paying attention to the little creatures that creep on the earth. Don't study or analyze them. Just watch the birds, the squirrels, the ducks. This is St. Francis. Don't evaluate them. Just watch. So go to a brook, he says, a, a little stream. Splash some water on your face. The, in that instant, do not seek to solve all the problems in your life, or the pollution in the world. Just feel the water. Most of all, do not try to find God in the water or make yourself thankful for the water. <laughs> Simply allow the cool wetness to refresh your skin. Now sit back. Listen to the sound of the brook. Watch the branches of the tree overhead swaying back and forth. Notice the leaves fluttering in the breeze. Notice their shape, their color, their texture. Listen to the symphony of rustling leaves and scampering chipmunks and twittering birds. I'm at, I remember, I'm not asking you to analyze, just to notice. And when we do this, with some degree of regularity, we in time begin to experience pleasures rather than merely needs. And what this does within us is altogether wonderful. We begin to understand the, the source of gratitude. So you get the idea, he says. Try to live one entire day in utter thanksgiving, he says. Like balance every compliment or complaint with 10 gratitudes, every criticism with 10 complaints. When you do that, a time will come when you find yourself saying not please, but thank you. And that's all Paul's doing, I think, is he's saying, hey, thank you for the gift. But for me to understand this big idea of contentment, of living in, in this sort of world where I'm being shaken around, I come to small things. Though I, it was a, a great gift, but probably a small gift. And I say, just thank you. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for your friendship. God, thank you for the sun, even though it's 30 degrees. <laughs> thank you, God. Do you understand what I'm saying? So that's the second thing. Learn contentment through the expression of gratitude in the ordinary, okay? Here's the last one. Learn through resting in God's provision, okay? In verses 18 and 19, it's kind of the crux of the whole thing. Paul acknowledges in 18, he says, I'm amply supplied. So thank you for your gift. I'm amply supplied. And then verse 19, he says, in, in light of the, the supply, the gift, this deep confidence, listen, my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Jesus Christ. Really important. What he's saying is that I've never been worried about whether or not your gift would be enough. And I'm profoundly confident that God will continue to supply not just to my life, but because he's the ultimate provider, your life. Even though I'm separated from you, and I know you have challenges, I know God's going to provide. And this is why Paul said earlier in 1 Corinthians 10, he's talking about uh, Israel's 40-year journey in the desert. Because he knows that God's the source of provision. He says in 1 Corinthians 10, that the day that Moses hit the rock and water came out, remember that? Read 1 Corinthians 10 sometime. He says that's not all that happened that day. Yeah, water came out of a rock and they had water in the desert and they would have died if they didn't have it. But he knows what happened that day. He knows that, here's the quote, our forefathers ate the same spiritual food, drank the same spiritual drink, they drank from the rock that accompanied them throughout the desert and that rock was Christ. He knows the rock wasn't a rock, the water wasn't water, Paul knows that God has always been in the business of providing the things necessary for God's people to live lives of faith. Always. And, and so God, and Paul is saying, I'm learning contentment by resting in that reality, which has at least one vital application into your life and mine. What do you think your source of provision is? What's your ultimate source of provision? Is it Amazon? Is it Microsoft? Is it Starbucks? Is it your 401k? Your dividends? Your degree from your college? Is it Paul is demonstrating that the contentment that comes from Christ comes more readily to those who see God as the primary source of provision. And why? Because 
Such people, like if it's you, aren't dependent on those outside resources to thrive. You're not dependent on the stock market. You're not dependent on if your degree is acknowledged or not. You're not dependent on your 401k. You're able to thrive in any circumstance because you've developed a confidence in the true source for fulfilling whatever you're called to do in Christ. Whatever it is, he'll provide. And you have absolute trust in the source, the water from the rock, regardless of the circumstance. Each and every circumstance is this opportunity to learn to rest in the provision of God. God is our provider. So this leads to the last point in that secret slide, but don't put it up, okay? Philippians 4.13. You thought I was going to preach a whole sermon on this. It's Paul's summary on this secret of contentment. Remember this verse? You've all memorized it. We've seen it somewhere on a poster. You've seen it on a t-shirt, or perhaps you've seen it. Go ahead and show the image now. Come on. Here. So I love Tim Tebow. Like, I think this is great. But what people have been forever doing is yanking this verse, you know, out of context and applying to all kinds of stuff, all kinds of stuff. And hear me, (laughs) Tebow's great, the posters are great, t-shirts are great, I don't know, whatever your application of this verse is. But it does highlight a fundamental problem with Paul's beautiful, powerful final declaration here. You can remove Tim. That's Philippians. It says Philippians 4. Remember that? He put it in like the black ink under his eyes, and he always had a different Bible verse. Um, Paul isn't talking about winning something, not talking about a football game. He's talking about surviving something. He's in jail. Remember, he's starving to death. He's not talking about a trophy or doing a deal or showing how tough you are. Like, you know, you got it together, how big your faith is. Nobody's going to stop me. I got a Rocky soundtrack going behind me. You know, it's, it's going to be great, right? This isn't a Rocky movie. He's talking about life and death, the difference between life and death, and learning to face life and death, incredible personal trials with gratitude, deep trust, no matter matter what happens, no matter what. And so you rip this verse, Philippians 4.13, out of context, and you miss the secret of contentment. You miss it. You utterly miss it. You miss out on the secret life of contentment. You miss out on this initiated life that's able to say, I'm going to be fine on the inside no matter what's going on, on the outside because I trust in God. Think about what Paul's saying. I can do all this through Christ. <laughs> I can do all this through Christ. I'm getting the stuffing bit out of me. I'm in jail. I'm going blind. My friends hate me. I have no job. I have no home. <laughs> I'm penniless. I'm lonely. I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if I'm going to make it out alive. And yet, I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. I can do it all while maintaining my commitment to Christ, my composure, my confidence. I'm not going uh, to compromise. I'm not going to deny Christ and say, Nero's Lord, just let me out. I'm staying the course. I'm not giving up on God. I can do it all through Christ who strengthens me. How can I do that? Through Him. <laughs> so let's break that down. I can do it all. How? Because of what I've said. But why? Through him. Who's him? Well, later manuscripts, if you read it, and I think the King James does this, put through Christ. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Most of our Bibles say him. And I think the reason they put the Christ in there, in case we forget, and say, I can do all things through him. Because we do that. I can do all things. You know, I'm a football player. I, I'm, a bit, I'm a good Christian. You know, I've got a great, I've got great skills, great mind. 
I can do all things through him, not myself. I can do all this through Christ. And do what? (laughs) What does Christ do? He gives me strength. In the Greek, it literally says, who gives me his strength. So here's how it would literally say, I can do all this, all the trials, through Christ, who strengthens me with his strength. It's not your strength. Never was. So Paul would later elaborate on this in one of his letters in Colossians. He says there's a mystery, not the same secret word, but there's a mystery, sort of similar, where actually the life of Jesus Christ, the person and work of Christ, the faith of Christ, Christ's strength and his power, his character, his composure, all that stuff, the contentment of Christ, you might say, is actually alive inside of you. I can do all this through Christ who strengthens me. He's alive inside of me. The mystery which has been hidden for ages and generations is now disclosed. It's Christ in you. Christ is alive in you. He's living, he wants, he's living his life through, whether you want it or not. He's doing it, and he's expressing his character. He's indwelling a life. That means the endurance of Jesus is available to you, the strength of Jesus is available to you, the faith of Jesus, the confidence of Jesus, the contentment of Jesus, available to each of you. God supplied it all through Christ, the whole life of Christ. That's the mystery of union with Christ, which leads to this response I want to invite us to this morning. Really simple. I want to pull this verse apart for us to apply today and then this coming week. And it goes this way. I can't, he can, he can through me. He can through me, okay? I can't. I'm not able. I'm strong. I'm educated. Got it going on. Got a good 401k, even though the market's down this week. Got a nice car. Beautiful kids who love the Lord. I got it all. It's good. But in honesty, when it comes to this thing I'm facing, this diagnosis, this relationship, it's sideways. This addiction, this past hurt that just lingers, this doubt, this despair, I can't. I just can't. I've been putting it on for the church, but I can't. I'm not going to pretend I can't anymore. I'm not going to lie about it and say I can to my spouse or my friends. I'm not going to drum up some sort of internal zen for Sunday and just like put this verse somewhere on a mirror and just kind of think, think my way into canning it. I can't. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to begin right here. Right now, I can't. Just begin right there. But Christ can. I can't, he can. And the reason I know Christ can is because he dragged his cross up that hill. <laughs> he, he was abandoned. He was beaten. He was broken. And yet the gospel tells us he did it freely. He did it willingly. He chose to do that. That's what it says. And if, he, if, if you can do that on purpose, like you make that your goal in life, you want, if you wanted to do that, you can do this. I can't. He can. And, by the way, it doesn't, he's not just some superhero living up in the clouds. You know, Marvel, whatever. Beyond our reach. Wow, unapproachable. Thank you for dying on the cross, Jesus. Wow, wow, I could never do that. I can't. He can. He can through me. Listen to this. The idea of union with Christ, this mystery hidden but now revealed, Christ in you, the hope of glory, here's what it means. It's not just about Christ expressing his life. It's about Christ inviting you to participate in his life. Do you hear that? He's invited us to participate with him as he works through us, works in us, to transform us and the world around us. And that's amazing. Christ has invited, the creator of heaven and earth has invited each of you to participate with him in the transformation of the world. I just, that doesn't blow your mind. I don't know what will, okay? And 
So the invitation Paul is offering is this. This mystery will create a reality because your Savior, my Savior, lives inside of you, each and every one of us. And he desires to express himself through you, work powerfully with you. And so here's our response. I just want to invite you. In fact, I'll invite our worship team up when you have a moment. <laughs> I'll wind down here. To write, to, you, you got a bulletin, I hope. If you didn't, there's a few left at the doors. And then there's some pens if you don't have a pen, like in your purse or purse. Okay, um, Merce is a man purse. Uh, so I want to invite you to write down the thing or things that you're facing where you know you can't. You know that you know that you know. We all have a thing, right? Do you have one? I see one head going this way, but I think they're talking to their kid. So <laughs> you all have one. The thing that's stirring discontentment in you that just won't change, the thing about you that won't change, the thing that you can, if you could just push a button and change it. But remember, what happened when they pushed the button? <laughs> like, you don't push the button. <laughs> you know, it might be your marriage. It might be the financial situation you're in, your work. You're going to go to work tomorrow. Your career's not going the direction you hoped. You're not where you thought you'd be. You're being tempted to do something unethical. You're just, wow, you're a mess. It, it could be that diagnosis. The doctors have said, we can monitor it. We, we can treat it, but we can't cure it. And you're like, you can't? And you go, yeah. I can't. It's okay. Because he can. In every, any and every situation in our lives, he can. So begin by writing down the thing where you can't. And then beneath that, write down the way in which God can and God will. Because what you know about God, you know, you claim the promise of God. A broken relationship, reconciliation. Because God's the reconciler. Lack of resource, provision. Because God's the provider. Sickness, healing, because God's the great physician. He's the healer. You can, God. Write that down. And then some of us might tear that off, and I brought this basket up, and might leave it and say, God, this is just a step of faith. It's symbolic. Leave it here. Our, Our staff would take that in confidence. Don't put your name, but we would love to receive those, pray for you, care for you. Or some of us might tuck it into Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as a reminder of this day where you started to say, I can't, but he can, and he can, and he will through me, okay? So whatever you choose to do, um, I want to invite us to to do that collectively. Just write that can't and the can down, okay? Either's fine. And I want to say this this last thing around that can't. Uh, That can't, the thing you're facing, your deep discontent, and I've experienced this myself, is the is where God has the greatest potential. It's the epicenter of where God has the greatest potential to do the greatest work in your life. It's true. Paul's in prison, and think of it, in prison's how Paul launched his writing ministry that changed the entire world. It's amazing. You talk to people. They tell you the story. They don't tell you the story of the wrinkle-free day. <laughs> they tell you the story of that time where they came to the end of their rope and how God began to work in that time. The, the can't, the moment of awareness. God will use this, whatever you're facing, for amazing, amazing good. I believe that. And so that's why I want to pray around this moment of response here. So let's pray, and then I'll invite us to respond together. Um, will you bow your heads and just pray with me? God, in the, in the tension of life, man, in this deep discontent that we all feel at some level uh, is where you get our attention. God, you have our attention this morning. 
We confess around so many different things in our lives, personal, collective. We can't. We can't anymore, God. And so we ask, God, for you to give us eyes now, eyes of faith to see the circumstances in our lives as you see them. We can't, you can. Teach us the secret of contentment, Lord, by, by drawing us both nearer to Christ this morning, but as we're near him, helping us to know him in the way that he wants to be known, learn from him, be loved by him, listen to his voice at work in our lives. God, we can't, but we're thankful, we're so deep, deeply grateful that you can and you have through Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.